I invite you to turn to Ephesians, if you would, at this time. We're going to look at six different passages. It really is a, uh, it's set up this way to follow this little phrase, in love, that's used. The two, one at the beginning and one at the ending, kind of like a bracket or a framework, are really chiefly about how God loves us, how we are in love with Him. And the ones in between are what that means for how we love others. So I, I really want to put those two together for you. But before we do that, I was thinking about Valentine's Day. I, just a little nudge. Maybe some of the men came here this morning and realized when they got to church, oh, it's Valentine's Day. I hope that's not true, but you do have time um, before tonight. So please think about that. I don't know if you know much about Valentine's Day. Historically, believe it or not, there's a couple versions of how we got Valentine's Day. They all revolve around St. Valentine. Um, the one I thought was the most possible was that in Rome in the early centuries, uh, they had at one point outlawed marriage for people who were in the military. Um, they thought it was too distracting from your service to the emperor. And so they outlawed it. And St. Valentine was one who secretly got couples together and, and, and got them married and, and did this, the ceremonies. And he eventually was martyred for it. So there you go. I'm not really sure if that's true, um, but that's Valentine's Day in our secular world, as well as, as you know, um, chocolate, uh, candies, and gifts, and so forth. It's a pretty big day in America. Uh, so big, there's 145 million Valentines that went out today. And I won't ask, ladies, how many of you got one this morning, but my wife did, and uh, I, she gave me one too. Um, but, by the way, you're not the only one who could get a Valentine. Listen to this. 27.6 million people will give Valentines to their pets. I have two cats at home, and they're getting nothing. And uh, so, it won't be in our house, but other people do that. 251 plus millions of do million dollars are spent on Valentine's gifts every year. Um, Valentine's Day is pretty much a romantic holiday in America. But when I ask, are you in love today? I don't want you to think candy and chocolate and Valentine cards and romantic love. I, I, I want the Apostle Paul to answer the question. But, you know, back in the day, I don't know, this is my day. I, I, the kids nowadays probably won't remember this. But when we were in love, and you said in love, it was not L-O-V-E, but when you were in middle school, it was this, remember this? Remember that? L-U-V. That was kind of like saying your, to your girlfriend, I love you, without shocking and, and totally freaking her out. You didn't mean the L-O-V part, E, but you, this kind of love. It was kind of a middle school love. And then as you got older in high school, you got this one. And we used to put this at the bottom of our notes. Remember that? True love always. Said that to people that it wasn't always, but it did happen. And then you get to Bible college love. And Bible college love, and you go to a Bible college back in those days anyways, they had what was called the dating parlor. That doesn't even sound good, does it? Um, but you could sit there, and you'd go in there, and you could sit on the couch. They had couples' couches, and they had, of course, monitors watching to make sure that you didn't hold hands or anything at Bible college. But you'd sit there, and they would have what I called the love stare. And they'd sit on the couch next to each other, and there wouldn't be any talking. You'd be just like this. And it was just like they were in love, and you could tell it because they would stare at each other, and sometimes they would start drooling, and it was really... A crazy thing, but that was love back in those days. I, I read an article, in fact, recently it said 
11 signs that you are in love. Number one was staring at each other for no reason. Honey, we're going to have to work on that more because I don't know if we've done that lately. But, but the Apostle Paul has a different kind of idea in his heart and mind when he says, are you in love? Um, it's not romantic. It's not cultural. It's a biblical. It's a theological kind of love. It's a love that goes way beyond what people might experience in Valentine's Day today. In fact, Ephesians is the most theologically, uh, as far as love goes, it's, the, it's got that theme in it more than any other letters that he has written. Fifteen times in 14 verses, the Apostle Paul talks about love. And the phrase he likes the best is the one that we're going to focus on in our few minutes this morning, and that is being in love. And so let me say it, it's, it's very obvious and clear that to be a Christian is to be in love. It is. And it's really just two sides of the same coin. We're going to look at that today. Uh, being a Christian means that you are, number one, in love with God. That's the vertical. And number two, that you are in love with each other. It's like getting a valentine that has something on both sides of it. Um, because they really are. You can't really be in love with God and not be in love with his people or people in general. And you cannot say that you love people if you do not love God, and not, not least in Paul's definition. So, I want you to think of it in this terms today. It's like God saying to you, we're going to look at what it meant for God to say, I love you. Um, And then what it means for you in light of that, when you say, I love you to others, whether it's in your family, whether it's in our church community, whether it's people in the world, um, those two are contingent on one another. So let's take a few moments this morning and unpack them one at a time. Can we do that? Firstly, being a Christian means that you are in love with God. Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4 is the first use of the phrase in love in this epistle. It reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. There it is. In love. Let me read the next verse because there's a debate about whether the in love part goes with the verse behind it or the verse before it. And I'm hoping that it's both. But in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So being a Christian means that you are in love with God. And so in our passage, he starts with blessed. It's not a verb, it's just a description. And in in Jewish times, in the first century, and even to today, they have what's called the Amidah. The Amidah was the way that Jewish people three times a day, nine, noon, and three, prayed. And they would begin by blessing God. They would just not go into God's presence and ask him for things, as if he was some sort of slot machine or something like that. They, They would bless him, and the Amidah was 19 blessings, and they would go through all of them. And, uh, and they would bless God, spend time thanking him for bringing food from the earth and water and all the things that they wanted to bless him. So Paul says, let me start off blessing God. And he's going to go through a whole long list in verses 3 through 14 of the reasons why God is worthy for us and what he's actually given us in spiritual blessings and why he's worthy of it. What, he, what has he done for us that we should bless him? And it's like the famous poet, Elizabeth Barrett Browning's poem, How Do I Love Thee? Let me count the ways. And Paul's going to do that. He's going to say, God, how do I love you? Let me count the ways in which you have done so much for me that I could actually love you. And here's what he says. He chose us 
in him. Now key, get this, because we're going to go over this quite a bit here in the opening. Before the foundation of the world. So it tells us when God loved us. He loved us before the foundation of the world. And then he tells us why God loves us. He loves us, it says in verse 5, for adoption to himself. Right? Adoption. So here's the idea. God loved you if you're a Christian, and he chose you. And the reason he chose you, even before your birth, he chose you before the beginning of the earth. He chose you in love to be in his family. So a lot of people think of, oh my, you're going to talk about election, you're going to talk about predestination, God choosing people, and they see it as some kind of ethereal, subjective, or, you know, sterile kind of a doctrine, but it couldn't be any farther from the truth. See, election, predestination, they are relational terms because here's what God says about choosing you, making you his child, adopting you. He did it in love, it says. He did it in love. But watch how God's love works. See, hold your finger here, and if you would, and turn to Romans chapter 9. I'm going to do Romans 9, and then I'm going to do the Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy 7. And there are going to be, in both of these passages, this little grammatical formula, because and not because. Because the word because is going to show you the why, the reason behind if you're a Christian, but the reason behind God loves you, what's behind it? Why does he love you? Why does he love you? And it says, Jacob, I have loved Esau, I have hated, which means to love less. Why does God love you? Why are you around a bunch of people in your life? None of them know God. They're not in love with him. You are. Why you, not them? Why you, not them? Here's what he says in our first because passage. Romans chapter 9 and verses 10 and 11, if you look there with me. Romans chapter 9. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born. See how it stresses that? See, before the foundation of the earth, before they were born. So why emphasize that? Here's why. Because God chose, chose to love them. Here's what it says. They had done nothing either good or bad. They weren't even born yet. So God loving you was not based on what you did. He didn't look down the corridors of time and say, oh, this is what they're going to become. I see that. See, they're going to choose me and they're going to love me. No, it had nothing to do with what you would be someday. But rather, it says, but in order that the purpose of God's election might stand, he says, that might continue, and not because of works, See, but because of him who calls. So the basis of God choosing you, loving you, adopting you into his family was not because you were good or you were bad. It wasn't because you had done anything yet. It was before your birth, before the foundation of the world. Here's what he says. I loved you, and the emphasis is this, because I called you to be in love with me. So here's what it isn't. Because God loved you, but not because of anything that you do. Let me show you again, even on a broader scale. That was just individuals, Jacob and Esau, but representative of Israel. But turn back in your Bibles, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, very similar wording and construction. Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6 reads... 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now watch. See the phrase? It's not because, but because. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. So get this out of your mind. He didn't choose Israel because they were the biggest nation, had the most people. It, it wasn't like that. That's not the reason. Most people would have chosen on that basis because they would have had more to offer. God says it wasn't because how many people you had. It, was, it had nothing to do with how, how much you had to offer him. And, and, and that's not why he set his love on you. It says, for you are the fewest of all peoples, and the opposite is true, he says. But, in contrast, but it is because the Lord loves you. Now, on Valentine's Day, what, what kind of a phrase is that? Let me tell you, what it, here's what it reads. God loved you because he loved you. And you say, well, that's not really an answer. Oh, it absolutely is. Because God loved you because he chose to love you, not because of you. It wasn't anything in you. It wasn't anything that you could done. It, it wasn't anything that you could offer him. See, it's not a, God loves you. And if you're in love with God, it wasn't a 50-50 proposition. It wasn't. It wasn't that God loved you and you loved him back. That's not how it was. This, this understanding is the end of all to-do lists. You know what that means this morning? If you are in love with God and God loved you, it means that you don't have to perform. It isn't because of how great you are. You can't get in love with God because of what you do, and you can't get out of love with God because of what you do. So your identity, you don't have to go around performing. You don't have to put on a show. You don't have to pretend to be something that you're not. See, because here's what it means. When God loves you, the Santa theology is over. You know what Santa theology is? That there's a list. Those who do are naughty and those who are nice. That's not how it works with God. He didn't love you because you were naughty or you were nice. He did not love you because of you. He loved you in spite of you. And there's a big difference. And, and see, you know what that means? It means a lot because on Valentine's Day, that's not how love that we practice works. See, in our love idea, our concept, it's a two-way love. I love you, and you love me back. And most people love other people and want them to love them back because when they look at that person, there's something lovable about them. They look at them and say either externally, look how beautiful they are, or internally, and hopefully both, how, how beautiful you are, right? And they say, look at your character traits, and how kind you are. And, and they see, cultural Valentine's Day is a two-way love. That's how we love each other, but that's not what God's love was like. See, God loved you when you didn't love him back. Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 to 10. The one in the middle goes like this, and you know it, but God showed his love for us. God demonstrated his love for us. So, so what is God's like? Well, his love is a one-way love, not a two. It's a one-way love. No, notice the little, phrase, the little phrases Three times repeated in this little paragraph. Romans 5, 6. While we were still weak. See, remember the, the, the Deuteronomy passage? You weren't bigger in number, you were fewer. Here's what he says. You, I didn't love you because you were stronger than other people. No, you were still weak. Romans 5, 8. While you were still sinners, I didn't love you because you were holier than anybody else. So you weren't stronger, you weren't holier. He goes, while you were still a sinner, I loved you. Verse 10, when you were still, while you were enemies, 
see? So you weren't friendlier. You, you, you weren't stronger. You weren't holier. You weren't friendlier with God. None of those things were true. God says, I loved you, and you were still all of those things, and you never loved me back. Isn't it great? I look out today, little children in the back, and I know Kalisa just had a baby, and we've had other babies on the way. And I remember it's been a long time, but we had babies in our home. And I remember having a, holding the baby in your arm. You know what I know about babies? It's a one-way love. You love those little babies, and you cheeks, and you kiss them, and you do stuff for them. They don't do anything for me. I changed their diaper. Okay, I did a few times, I promise. Very few, but I did. You feed them, you change them, you cuddle them, they love them, you hold them, you rock them. When they cry, you pick them up, and you do all these things, and what do they do? They don't do anything back for you. They don't say, oh, thank you so much, I love that. No, they just want more food, and they want you to change your diaper more, and they cry when you don't every single time. Because a relationship with a baby is a one-way love. But you know what about babies? They have no illusions of self-power. Babies don't have these illusions that somehow, as a baby, I can take care of myself and I don't need you. But people do, see? See, when God loved you, people have this illusion that somehow I could be good enough and I could earn God's favor and I could perform and I could be a certain kind of a person. So we have illusions of self-power that we can be right with God or get God's favor or earn it or merit it. And here's what God says, that's not the kind of love I offer. So much so, listen to this, let this just grab you. In our book that we're studying, Ephesians 2, the very first three verses of that chapter says, and you he made alive when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Now let me take it further. Remember when you were still weak, when you were still a sinner, when you were still an enemy. Now, those are bad enough, but watch this. How about when you were dead? You had nothing to offer. You weren't even alive. You are a spiritual corpse. God says, you were dead in your sins. The prince of the power of the air, Satan, was controlling you. You were in his family. You weren't in mine, he says. But verse four, look at Ephesians 2, 4. It says this. But God, see, this was all true. You were dead and Satan was controlling you, but God broke in. It was initiated by him. It wasn't, you weren't attracted. You weren't coming to him. You weren't saying, God, look at my plight. Please save me. None of that. God broke in. But God, who is rich in mercy, listen, with his great love with which he loved you. And the great word is not mega. It's the word that means much. God's mercy and his love were so great that even when you were dead and you had no, no acknowledgement of his existence, you didn't care about him, here's what said, God said, I broke into your life, I initiated a love relationship, and I raised you from the dead. If that doesn't overwhelm you, I don't know what can. See, that's what it means when he says, in love. He chose you and predestined you in love. First John says it great, doesn't it? We love him because he first loved us. You know what that means? God's love is always antecedent to ours. It always comes first. He loved you when you were spiritually weak. See, it came first. Before you could ever get strong, he had to make you strong. Before you could ever get pure, he had to make you pure. Before you could ever be at peace with him, he had to come into your life. See, and no one else 
can I tell you, no one else could ever love you like this. No one else. And that's why Ephesians 1, 4 is the first use of in love in this book because that's where it all starts. You will never, can I say this? You will never love your wife as Christ loved the church unless you realize that your identity is someone who was radically loved by God who had a one-way love for you when you cared nothing about him. Until you see how you have been loved, you cannot love other people the way that God would want you to. Now that's where we're going to end in 5-2. But in between, can I tell you, chapter 3 and verse 17, would you turn there? We're going to have to cover these middle ones fairly quickly. Here's what Paul says. Once you've established the fact of how God has loved you and you're in love with him, here's what he says you need to do. Chapter 3 and verse 17 reads, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded, there it is, in love. You need to be rooted and grounded in love. In other words, it it needs to dwell in your hearts. It's not just a sterile fact on a page of the Bible. God says when you're a Christian and you're in love with God, it needs to leap off the page and get in your heart and feel at home there. It means to be, this is the pattern of love that affects and impacts every relationship that I have. See, and this is the love he says that is beyond comprehension. And I need to know all of its dimensions because here's the way where he is surpassing knowledge. The love of God should blow you away because it's beyond what you and I can totally grasp. But we want to grasp it more. We want to know it better. The word surpass in the Greek is the English word we get hyperbole. Hyperbole is being incredibly exaggerating to make a point. And here's what God says. You couldn't exaggerate the kind of love that I have for you. You couldn't. You couldn't go over the top. You can't say too much. It's immeasurable. Imagine, ladies, today that you had a valentine, meaning your husband, and that's how he loved you. That he couldn't measure it. That there wasn't anything he wouldn't do. And even though in your marriage that sometimes it's not reciprocated and you love and they don't love back, certainly not the way that you think, that we don't give up on those things. Why? Because God says, let it get inside of you. Let it go deep in you. Let it be rooted. Let it be down to the very essence and core of who you are. And by the way, if you are saying this morning, and you are, because I've thought it in my mind, Pastor Walker, I could never love my wife or spouse like that. I could never, how could you love your children like that? How do you love people like that when they don't love you back? In fact, they're rude, they're crude, they're mean, they're selfish. How do you love them like back? It's rare, isn't it, that kind of love? We see glimpses of it at times in small acts in people's lives. But to make it a lifestyle and for God to say, hey, I loved you one way and that's how you love other people, it's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? But God says, let it be rooted. I'll give you the power to do it. See, just like you couldn't get saved, you can't come to God without his love first. And you can't give his love to others without his love first, see? And so he says, if you'll turn over to chapter 4, Verses 1 and 2, Paul says, let me demonstrate for you as an example what it would look like. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. God's called you into this love. Now walk worthy of it. What would it look like if you walked worthy of God's one-way love? He says it would look like this. Humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another, there it is, ready, in love. 
See, love, if it's God's one love, you know it always seeks oneness with the person that it loves. And so this passage is followed up with all these one statements. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. It always seeks oneness. So one of the ways you can tell whether you're in love with God is you're always trying to seek oneness. If there's an argument, you're trying to bring oneness. If there's a problem, if there's a schism, if there's a division, if someone's upset, you're always trying to bring oneness because that's what God's love does. Because oneness vertically will always mean that you pursue oneness horizontally. And when you can let people go, and you don't want to talk to them, and you don't want to work your problems out with them, there's something wrong this way, not just this way. Because that's what one-way love does. It works things out. How, Pastor Walker? It's so hard. It is. But he says, here's the traits that need to mark you. Ready? Humility, gentleness, patience. Humility is a compound word. And it means literally humble-minded. So it's not just being humble once in a while, I'll take out the trash. No, it's a, it's a framework. It's a mentality. It's, Paul would say it's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. See? It's saying that I don't have to have my way. That I don't have to have people notice me at church or give me attention. Or they don't have to do this. And they, they don't have to do you know what? It's not being about me. And Paul says, how far would you take it? Where he says it for, for one, I'm the prisoner of the Lord. You know how much he loved, Paul loved the Lord, how much he was in love with God, that he would give up his freedom and right and, and land in a prison in order to continue to love God and love others. Humility. Se- second, he says, gentleness. And the word gentleness means meekness power under control think about this way gentleness is not what was exhibited in the presidential debates think the opposite of what you saw on television if you watched them see gentleness is not argumentative it's not powering over it's not harshness because you're going to listen to me and the most important thing is i'm proving i'm right and you're wrong that's not love's main goal although it's part of it Rather, it's self-evaluative. It means that you know how you would like to be treated, and you treat people the same way. In fact, gentleness in the New Testament is often translated with this little phrase preceding it, a spirit of gentleness, because it is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, it's an attitude. It's saying that I I don't have to yell, I don't have to get loud, It's a pervasive attitude. In fact, Paul uses it as an opposite in 1 Corinthians 4.21. He says, Corinthians, do you want me to come to you in gentleness and love or with a rod? The opposite of gentleness is that I'm going to beat you into submission. That I'm going to lay you out. I'm going to give you what you really deserve. Gentleness says that's not what has to happen. And because of that, humility, gentleness, he says, patience occurs. See, Patience is also a compound word. It means literally long desire. Here's what it means. People who are in love with God love others. And you know how they love them? They don't go from zero to 60 in two seconds. It's not that your wife or your kids can make you mad so quickly. You have a long fuse, not a short one. The people who don't have that kind of love, they're not in love like that. See, they don't get what they want at their job, they quit. They don't get what they want in their marriage, they divorce. They don't get what they want in their church, they leave. Because they're not really in love. 
How do I know, Pastor Walker, if I've got humility, patience, and endurance? Here's what will happen. Ready? Here's how it fleshes out. Next participle phrase. Bearing with one another. There's our phrase. Bearing with one another in love. Bearing. Putting up with people. In fact, when the question's asked, often the Bible, how I have to bear with people, the phrase often has this little time statement in it. How long? How long do I have to bear with this? Have you ever asked that? How long do I have to stay in this marriage? How long do I have to bear with people talking about me and treating me like that? How long do I have to do that? And see, here's what the Bible says. Humility and gentleness and patience allows you, gives you the ability to bear with people in love over time. Not just getting through the moment, not just seeing it through one difficulty, but over time. How do you love? Have you ever seen parents who love their children and their children rebel against them and they keep rebelling it and so those rebellious things become traits and those traits as they grow up become habits and they become patterns in their life and they, they result in consequences that are crippling and destructive and parents still love them. How do they do that? Because they are in love with their children. They never give up on them. My dad, when my mom was 70, found out that she had Alzheimer's. So I sent him a book by a man named Robert McQuilkin, and the title is A Promise Kept. Robert McQuilkin, in 1990, was the president of Columbia International College and Seminary. He had written books. He was a speaker. He had a great life, and he was at the height of his career. In 1990, his wife, Muriel, had Alzheimer's. They ended up being married for 55 years, but for the last 13 years, she didn't know who he was. He quit being president. He dropped out of the college, out of the seminary, his job to do one thing, to take care of his wife, who had Alzheimer's. The book is his comments and his journey through learning to love his wife and bearing with all that she was over time. He said first he was upset because of all he had to give up and he became a little angry about it and he loved her and took care of her stoically. There wasn't a lot there going on other than duty. But he said over time I had to learn what it meant to be in love with her again. Because without that, he says in the book, he would never have been able to do it for so long. See, that's what it means to be in love. Bearing when someone, Alzheimer's, when they can't give anything back, when your wife doesn't know your name or who you are, when she can't put her arms around you and say, I love you back, when she can't touch you and kiss you on Valentine's Day, but you still love her and you stand by her, that's a different kind of love than chocolates and a card. And then it says, to top it all off, as if it wasn't enough already what they said, humility, it says. And then it says, patience, gentleness, bearing with one another. And then it says this, eager, <laughs> eager to maintain the unit, eager. How do you get eager in there? I mean, isn't it hard enough to do all the things before? And then it says, on top of it, when I do them all, I got to be eager i got to be excited about it. I can't wait to do it. Who is like that? Someone who's in love with God, knowing he loved them. That's how you do it. Eager to maintain the unity. In other words, I'm not quick to get out of it. I'm quick to stay in it. 
to God that that was how it was in churches today, that people work through problems and things they don't like, we work it out. You know why? Because we're family and we love each other, even despite our sins and our transgressions and our problems. See, we don't throw in the towel. We don't look for greener grass. We don't quit. Why? Because we live in a cancel culture, don't we? That if you don't meet up to my standards, I'm done. That's the world's candy and valentines. It's not God's. So in 4, 15, and 16, it says, rather, speaking the truth, here's this phrase, in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow. So here's what he says, and it ends the same phrase. See, it makes the body grow in love. It's little brackets, in love, 15 and 16 both. See, that's how churches grow not when you're in love with yourself, but when you're in love with God and others. See, that's how we mature. That's how we all together corporately become more like Jesus. We've all got a way to go. And can I tell you, now more than ever, please hear me, now more than ever, we need to stick together. You know why? Because here's what he says why you need such love. Because you can't be children Look at the text. Who are tossed about, verse 14, with every wind and wave of doctrine. In other words, the world around you want, doesn't want you to love that way. They are pressuring you, giving you different ways to think about how to love each other. And, and, and very few people in the world practice that kind of love. So you feel like it's outdated or it's antiquated or it's impossible. You know why we need each other? Because winds and waves describe hurricanes, storms. That's how they're used in the Bible. Today, if you have a hurricane like we experienced a number of years ago, it's measured by the Saffir Sampson scale, or Simpson scale. And it measures hurricanes based on wind speed and potential damage that it can cause. Category one, 74 to 95 miles an hour. Category two, 96 to 110. Category three, 111 miles to 129 miles per hour. And now it becomes a major hurricane. Category four, 130 to 156 miles per hour. Five, 157 miles per hour and up. That's the strongest storm. Sustained winds. Category five has this little caveat at the bottom. It can flatten entire communities. Can I tell you, you and I live in a society of hurricane forces. And the winds and the waves of what people believe in our world, they are pressing us and beating us and blowing against us at all times. We live in a society where there's the winds and waves of the hurricane of sexual revolution, of racism, of nationalism, false religion, therapeutic deism, which makes everybody into a victim and no one's responsible for anything anymore, of evolutionary atheism, that we are just here by cosmic accident, and on and on I could go. And can I tell you, we live in a society of hurricane force winds and waves. We need to love each other. In fact, the phrase is, literally in the Greek, not speaking the truth in love, it just says truthing in love. Truthing in love. In other words, when everything ought to come out of our mouth should be truth, because here's what our love and our unity is based on. Hear me. The Bible. What the Word of God says. Not what culture says. Not what my race says. Not what my ethnicity or my social economic status says, but what God's word says. See, that's where our love finds its unity. 
And if we try to find it in anything or anyone else, we will fail miserably. We are Christians in a category four or five environment. And we need to stick together. We need to love together based on the word of God. And so we come to the last one, the climactic one that I read this morning, chapter five, verses one and two. You know, he says, now that you know all these things about God's love, and now you know what it means, at least in a little detail, about how that love, you should love others. Here's what the exhortation is. Ready? Be imitators. Therefore, become imitators. See, God says, this is how I loved you. Now, you mimic it. You put your life up. Here's Jesus on the cross. You put your life right next to it, and you cut a pattern out. This is the pattern. He loves this way. Now you love this way. Put your life up to Jesus' life and specifically his death on the cross and see if you can cut out a pattern where you're like him. Someone has said that imitation is the most sincere form of flattery. And I think this God, the God that we serve deserves more than a little flattery. I think he deserves our whole life, doesn't he? It's not just flattery, it's identity. That's what we are. And then he says this, well, what would you do if you were a mimic? How would it look? You walk in love. See, we walk in this. Walk, it's our conduct. It's our behavior. It's what describes us. It's our lifestyle. You know why? Because he goes without saying, as beloved children. He wants to remind you back to 1-4. Ready? You were adopted. You weren't my children. Remember? You weren't. But I loved you in such a one-way love that before history started, I loved you. And now let me show you how in history I love you as my child. Ready? It's one thing to say, God, you loved me before I existed. But what did you do once I existed? God, if you don't, it wasn't anything good in me. But then when I was actually born and lived my life and you looked at me and you said, God, look what I've done. Look how I've treated people. Look what I've said. I wonder if he still loves me. He has one answer for that. Verse 2. And walk in love, how? As Christ loved us, yeah, before time, yes, but also in time, and gave himself up for us. He said, this is how much I love you, in time. See, for God, Valentine's Day isn't February 14th. It's Good Friday. Because this is how much he loves you. Remember the disciples? He said, look at my hands. Look at my feet. Put your finger in my scars and know that I love you, he says. If you're looking for guys and you haven't got a present yet for your wives, I have found perfume always works on any occasion. The most expensive one, I wouldn't suggest doing this one. There were top 10. The number one is the DKNY perfume for ladies called Golden Delicious. It is $1 million. I would suggest Kohl's over that. But it's a million dollars because it's the most expensive fragrance in the world. 2,909 precious stones are just in the box it comes in. 183 yellow sapphires, 2,700 white diamonds, 7.8 carat oval sapphire, 15 pink diamonds, four rose-cut diamonds, 1.6 carat turquoise diamond, uh, 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 another one that's cut in a ruby shape, another one that's cut in a pear shape, another one that has flawless yellow canary diamond, and on and on the list goes. 
And that's, the, that's before you even get to the perfume. I think the, the box is really wealthy, but I think the perfume is actually Kohl's. But it's the most expensive fragrance in the world. I'm sure it smells amazing. But can I tell you that? It doesn't hold the candle to the real expensive fragrance in this passage. Because when Jesus died for you, here's what it says. He gave himself for us a fragrant offering. Talk about a Valentine's present. Way beyond a million dollars. Way beyond it. See, Here's what Jesus says. I want you to love your bride, men, like I love mine. Can you love your wife like I love my wife, the church? It's going to go way beyond a million-dollar perfume bottle. It's going to be a sacrifice of self-giving and self-sacrifice every day. See, I give my wife that present every day. The best thing you could do, men, is to realize that this fragrance, this most expensive one that comes through Jesus' death and resurrection, it comes in a perfume and a cologne, and everybody can wear it. That's what Ephesians 5 is about. We can all wear it. And what if we did? What if when God saw us at church in our relationships and he saw us at home, what if he said, wow, smell that perfume. Look at that, smell that cologne he's wearing. I mean, that cost me everything for them to live that way, and it was worth every penny of it. Gentlemen, ladies, let's put on that fragrance, the fragrance of Jesus Christ. Let's wear it at home. Let's wear it at church. Let's wear it to the world around us because that's what it means to be God's valentine. Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed and no one looking around. Maybe you already got a gift for your spouse or your wife or husband today and you're going to give it to them with a card later or something like that. And I suggest, along with it, that you whisper in their ear, and this is nothing, nothing compared to how I want to love you in Jesus Christ. Don't think that candies and flowers and cards can make up for a daily life of no love. Maybe today you should get with someone in church that you're at odds with. Maybe you should get, go home, talk with your children, children with parents and spouses together. Maybe you could say today, listen, God made me his valentine at an awful cost. It was a one-way love, and I want to love others like that. But it's gonna take humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with people. You can only do that with his help. You know that, right? Would you do that now in the quietness of this moment before we close in prayer? Would you just bow and say, Jesus, I need your love to love you. And I need your love to love others. May you overwhelm me and fill me to the fullest with the unbelievable surpassing love that is in Christ Jesus. Father, oh, how I love Jesus. We're gonna sing that. But the important word, perhaps maybe the most important in that little line is the O. It's not just dutiful, it's delight, it's a desire, it's our passion, our fervency, our urgency. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how we pray that your love would fill us, that it might overflow into all the lives around us. Let us walk that way, Master, out of your cross and for your glory and for the good of others we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.